Hello, welcome to Solomon's Temple. In this episode, I wanted to go over critical race theory. So what comes to mind for me in my intuition of understanding, in my point of view, what is race? Race should not be confused with culture because we know from village to village, from area to area, geographically, nationally, with politics, with economy, all you could hardly subdivide all this stuff out. So race then is broad category. They're categories. Categories set up boundaries. Boundaries tend to be identifiable and discernible, but they're very changeable and they have lots of nuance. So with this, you know, what can we break down? Well, I do believe that some people come from blood that have certain epigenetical features. They have certain cultural narratives, but they also have certain cultural knowledge and they have a geographical whatever. You can define groups. You can define individuals. You could define universally a whole. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, you shouldn't delineate everyone's personhood out like this, but we can say that there's a continuity of people that exist within a culture. I like to think of culture, if not by the artifact or something that's rather unreliable, but if you put a host of people together, you know, you all kind of spit and into one batch or you share a bunch of germs and you just collect it and over time it's this culture it's this shared sort of plasm of germs of ideas understanding of organization you know there's a collective community on earth there's a collective culture there's a national identities there's all different kinds of things that constitute something enclosed and connected and shared you've all breathed on your friends. You've all gotten sick from your closer friends. And a lot of the reason why they're a lot closer is because you've shared germs. You're a part of a more tight-knit culture. And actually, a lot of cultures are very privy to this. You give the germ plasm over ritually to newcomers so they become more thoroughly wedded into your physical culture. So then, to be a national identity like an American, but to be a black American... Now, why is it different to be among the category of being black in the United States or perhaps being a second generation immigrant from Switzerland? Maybe there's something indeed there because there is a distinction between where you come from in time and where you're headed. So what would it mean to critically think about what it is to be living here as a seventh sixth, seventh, possibly eighth generation black American. Well, I knew who I was and what my name was back in the 1600s. That got taken from me. I no longer live on that continent and that culture. And now I'm over here and people I don't really understand are moving me around and teaching me to do all these things for them. I am a part of this settler colonial area and I am essentially a human tool for lots of people. Within that, I have the closest people that I know be taken away from me. I have people controlling and abusing me. I have this nightmarish memory that gets passed on as time goes on. Through time, as I progress through history at a certain juncture of um, geographical and political reality, my level of understanding within that those union of forces that make the culture and which I'm a part of, 
I am severed from certain parts and aspects of it while others are going on or going forward. So in time, my lens of understanding who I am as an identity, as a sort of made and structured into physical, definable, appearance-based, cultural-based, separation-based idea, and I am in fact these things. So I've witnessed through time all the major contributions that I have done for this, and now I want to come up and live more as an equal in the same situation. On the path to doing this, it wasn't 300 years later where I found myself, finally slavery is abolished, okay. I find myself, oh, Brown versus the Board of Education. Oh, I can attend universities where I could learn stuff, be connected with people, get jobs, learn, climb upward, be involved with different social circles, have a different understanding, afford a different relationship to where I am and the people around me, be bludgeoned by the legal forces. Legal forces can bludgeon me and keep me away from things, Jim Crow, laws, these types of things. And we've seen uh, a lot of that no more than 70 years ago, 60 years ago. The mid-60s, that was, let's see, yeah, 60 years ago, roughly. So with that, you know, we have another collective memory, a psychological formation of what the culture is and what it is in relation to me, whatever that is supposed to be defined by what you look like, what your descent is, by whatever capacity. So as we would have it through a critical lens, there would be an intersectional approach. Well, what were the statistical points in what makes up the categories of me? So with critical race theory, what part of me that I can identify with um, would contribute to my place in the world, my place within the culture? how I'm supposed to understand how the past relates to where I am. It would be this concressing idea of, all right, I'm going to induct how much has happened in space and time and take into account, okay, what is my age? What has been my past? And what has happened in the past? What opportunities were afforded? What have I been labeled as? How, does society, how has society seen me? What are the opportunities now? Where do I live? What is my sex? And who am I? And people kind of forget the more critical spiritual elements of what's actually happening. And that's really too bad that society has foregone that or at least kept it swept under the rug so people don't become more of who they are. They don't want to be... There is a power structure, that I, I believe, that doesn't want people to become empowered in general, even in your own closer nets that have existed through time because I just believe um, the holding in with of power requires withholding of information and the best information to withhold to keep you away from their power is keep you away from your own doesn't that make sense but at any rate we're not talking about that but it is important and that's why you're here at the temple I'm it's it's my spin you know I don't want to keep people in a tailspin I want you to get the right spin so I'm gonna spin it but at any rate but what also does this look at? I mean, what effects do this identitarian lens that looks to observe what the difference in injustice and inequity that might exist still? I mean, I look at some of these examples. They're very subtle nowadays. I was just watching TV and there's a new Annie and, you know, Annie the redheaded curly girl orphan. But Annie this time is a black girl in the remake. And it stands out like, look what we did. Annie is now a little black girl orphan. 
huh, okay, we're used to interacting with that whole narrative in a very different way, and now it's a little black girl. But it kind of point, points out, like, all right, can you view this narrative as you know and love just having now a black girl play it and kind of points out like is there any difference it's not a big deal why are you worried about it but you're you're pointing it out to insinuate that there's always such a difference in viewing people who appear differently to be a part of certain things maybe this helps maybe this is just trying way too hard and making identity prevalent and getting people to see a discrepancy of compensation that really this is how things are going down would it be bad would it be good it would be good for those to examine and see themselves well how does this make me feel well it shouldn't make you feel anyway it's just Annie but why do they put a black well they did it just so that they could have black Annie why do they need to do that why does it need to be so identity laden like well, I guess well, we shouldn't be thinking about it that way we should just let it happen naturally well what would it ever happen and that's kind of the thing as well there's been a, um, a misrepresentation on television and in many forums of the public eye where people have not had center stage, have not had the voice, but now you do it all the time. Now the diversity appears everywhere. Ah, just don't shove it in my face like that. Well, maybe that's not a good response. Then again, it's bringing up just let's overcompensate for the, the time of misrepresentation and put it all somewhere else so that we can get used to it and everyone can agree. And there it is. And there's no problem. Of course, then again, if you keep bringing up these identitarian boundaries and then keep affording it this, this power, and then it takes on the attitude of, yeah, well, why don't we just do the obverse of what happened in the past and let's shift the power the paradigm around. Let's shift power around now. And in that way, you've just incited another power struggle and have afforded the same reality and have whipped up fear into the hearts of people who identify as different. And you've created a whole new identity and power struggle between gaps of culture and race and nothing actually got better. So I examined uh, an affirmative action program, Unfair Discrimination. It was a um, affirmative action essay on the principles of equality, racial differences, and affirmative action uh, programs. And it was sort of in a philosophical uh, ethics analysis. Um, it, I, I got it from the, I borrowed it from the book, uh, You Decide, Current Debates and Contemporary Moral Problems. Uh, Bruce uh, Waller put together this book. So um, it's sort of in a debate style. I like to stay away from debate. I like argumentation a lot better, but you're, you know, still there's a lot of push-pull effect, especially when it comes to divisive subjects. It's imbued within the very premises of that reality, which I think is a lesser reality than what I like to present here on, on this podcast and in the space of philosophy in general. I believe a lot of things can um, overcome that through understanding. Unless you want to dwell within images and illusions, then of course you'll probably definitely invite pure opinion and a dualism that can cost people soul and hate. It would cost probably a lot to think in this way. And, um, well, we're trying to overcome this, so. But at any rate, we must understand what these realities are so that we can then interpret what exactly it is and be able to side with 
or deal with whatever these realities are and to be able to understand how, how to work with them and get on the brighter side of them and ameliorate what these issues are through our best collective will or our understanding of this thing. So Carl goes on to say that racism and disparate racial outcomes are the result of complex, changing, and subtle social and institutional dynamics, rather than explicit and intentional prejudices of individuals. Okay, so, what would be an instance of complex, changing, subtle social institutional dynamics? Well, how would you climb the job ladder if you didn't have a solid foundation to invest in your education, to be able to break into different levels of job dynamics or to get certain gain certain pathways get into certain things without first having certificates like if you don't have a degree if you weren't able to get into something if you weren't able to access it whether it was that you're just your transportation isn't reliable enough to get there sometimes it's just this it has a lot to do with money and i think that has um a lot to do with why people bring up institutional or structural racism or social racism it's not that people are actively doing it but it's done within a model of what do you have and how did you get it and through history certain groups couldn't get to things they were barred from it but now that it's all open the more subtle cases of well you know do you have any history of X, Y, or Z? Have you been jailed? Well, you know, we all know black people have been jailed for a lot of different things that don't even actually matter. And I believe it was done to stratify the ability to be employable and then to wind up into the prison system and create for, you know, the prison industrial complex and so forth. So there's this, but it doesn't say that they're prejudiced of these individuals, not explicitly. It's more done within replicating the class system where we find most of certain kinds of individuals in. It should be noted that at the top, there tends to be a lot of group of individuals that are increasingly of the same background, racially, just by appearance, socially, from the same colleges. It's, it's no doubt that we've had almost half our presidents come from Harvard, the Skulls and Bones Club, there's, there's a select few. Yeah, rulership has been based on these kinds of things, you know, being a part of a few social clubs, a few universities. And as a wrestler, there has been lots of presidents that have been wrestlers. And while I'm proud of, you know, my wrestling career and it was a lot of fun, it is still interesting that a lot of wrestlers were presidents. The same, because wrestling is a big power struggle. It's this big overcoming of someone else simultaneously. Let me force myself onto you and try to win this match. You know, it's, <clears throat> you know, so it's um, maybe that isn't the right model for leadership is to physically exert and strategize and gain control over somebody. That's, ju that's just a thought. You could ponder that. I mean, of course, sometimes like better ideas override. Things get overridden. There's better arguments. There's better ideas. There's more equipped people to do different jobs. There's, there is an overcoming force or strength within leadership, you know, and as an example, you can't just hop directly into it with no will, no insight, experience, having no answers, you know, no vitality in that way. It's like, it's hard. You need these ingredients to lead. And it should be pointed out that also the, the astrological sign of Leo has been very present in, in presidencies because Leo is the strength card. 
in the tarot. So it's it's claimed that uh, within critical race theory is that there's critics that argue that it is based more on storytelling than on evidence. And reason is being rejected in the concepts of truth and merit. But is this rebuking of critical race theory silencing equality, the history of race, racism, social justice, and that this is an interdisciplinary approach that is legitimate and that seeks to combat race inequity in society. But of course, there's this double-edged sword of, well, if we're combating all these inequities, is it important to point out that I am unequal because I identify as X, Y, and Z? Well, if everyone's equal, then why are you saying you're unequal when you identify as such? But if you are, then you are, and that's the only way to address it. And that's what people forget about and they're playing around with language. They don't really understand. Would a lower to middle class black person have different needs than a middle to upper class white person? We seek information about our own group and we exist within that framework. And there seems to be an empathic gap. And when you are a victim of sort of racist things, you have this internalization. And essentially you would start to believe that, yeah, I, I am inferior to white people, not due to my own ignorance, my will, my spirit, my, you know, not due to any weaknesses, not due to any defects or shortcomings, but it's just the experience of the matter will start to generate an effect in this fashion. And it would be that that's what a racist would want. They would want to create an identity of I am better than you. I am just superior than you. I want you down with my feet on top of you. And so then it would become hard to realize that because of identities, it would create a platform to identify an internalized effect of people who have been victims of this do believe that there has been a creation of inferiority and superiority. We know there has been white supremacy. We can see how many white people have been in halls of power over time. You can identify administrations. You could look at the Trump administration and you will see what it looks like versus a candidate that might be quite diverse and everyone in their council looks a lot different than each other. They're all coming from a different place and understanding. Wouldn't they have a different point of view or perspective? But it would be very difficult to be able to face down that your own point of view is not either wrong or it's harmful to someone. So that's maybe why you exclude them. It just seems so easy to figure that one out. It's just pattern recognition for Christ's sakes. We then look at what about other minorities? Asian, Jewish. Why would it be that they have such an exceptionalism? Model minority? That's another internalization, a model minority. Oh, you're a minority that we haven't put our feet on so much that we can just make them believe that there's this whole victimization complex and inferiority that has been imposed on them so that we can reign, so we can have power, can feel so much better. I could be afforded so many opportunities. There's not a lot of pitfalls for me. I could have it all, baby. You know, be on top of the world, be on top of, of it, be on top of everybody. It seems as though, okay, well, maybe it would be that since we have these gateways and in, in histories that set people apart, in some sense or fashion, you have this Jewish exceptionalism, okay? Oh, they're so very smart from Jewish ethnicity. Well, they've been part of the quote-unquote West. They're England-integrated Jewish Christian law and culture into the very fabric of their society. So why wouldn't it be exceptional? It's being held like a golden goblet. Why wouldn't you? Well, Asian cultures 
have had civilizations and large groups of people within states and provinces thousands of years longer than some of the Western civilizations. It's just been gone on, it's gone on so much longer, and it, within that way, that connection has happened far more thoroughly. And even though within the Americas there has been a marginalization of even Irish people, let alone Asian descent, of, of what, whatever variety, Chinese, Japanese, Laotian, Filipino, all across the Asian continent, that sort of lumping into, and it would be varied to look at different accounts of what is the story behind immigrants individually within a certain boundary and across certain boundaries and that's a lot to take in people don't sit there and take in account of all the experience across the globe you would have to have some sort of degree in cross-cultural studies maybe in history anthropology maybe uh, to examine these accounts and it would just take hours to go over it but we have the time there is time enough for these things to be able to look at an experience from the eyes of someone else maybe through a documentary or to just read someone's diary or what you know whatever there is 15 hours in your life to be able to examine between what it was to be a Jewish immigrant in the 1800s, what it was to be an Asian person in the 1800s, what it was to be Irish, Jewish, to be already here for three decades, and to be a part of higher social circles as a white person. You can look at all these things. They're available. I haven't even done it, but you know what? It's possible. And you can probably understand the woven fabric and what the different accounts would look like. What would it reveal? And, you know, I don't know what it would reveal necessarily. But like with that Jewish exceptionalism bit that I showed you, minority, yes. Well, culturally reified, put on a pedestal, drinking from on a golden cup, the Jewish perspective. In the most important aspects of life, we have the King James Bible. So... It would explain the certain attitudes and perspectives of a whole group of culture towards certain minorities given what the cultural narrative and the cultural connection is and why it would prevail. And of course, we are a Gilzashaft society that's highly driven to build things, be active, dominate, and essentially be highly disciplined. And you would have an Asian culture that has been a part of that for quite some time. So, of course, you'd be willing, able, and, and, and would become a part of that in a very big way. And why you would excel maybe just in school, you know, at universities. And it hit high marks there as an Asian, as an Asian person of Asian descent. A lot goes into explaining what the negative qualities are. I mean, I've, I've heard people say, you know, black people... That is a broken race. And I say, well, isn't it funny how you would even say that? Who broke them? Wouldn't it be justified to say, we need to protect what we have broken, or we need to fix what has been broken, but we're not, like, doing it all the way. So, if, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe there's this brokenness among a group of people you identify as. And how stereotypical racist this whole talk is. You say it's a broken race, okay? Who broke them? Why? You say this, but you don't say it with any compassion. You say it as like a judgment or a criticism, but like maybe you should say it with compassion. We broke this, let's fix it. Maybe that's a part of critical theory. So within Carl's essay, race preference is not justified as compensation. What does that mean? Well, like I just said, what about people who have been hurt because of their race, damaged, or deprived? Do they not deserve some redress? 
He says, of course they do, but it is the injury for which compensation is given in such cases, not skin color. So we don't do it just by skin color, we do it by injury. But how do you separate the two? If people have witnessed and been around all different kinds of abuse, and we can't hear their stories. So maybe stories are important, because it's not all logged in a data field. It's not all about your charts. Even though, of course, it is, there is an imbalance in, in um, what we see and what has occurred and who has been put in jail. So in order to grant opportunities and ensure that there is a fairness that ensues, how can we trust people? Well, there's an element of distrust with this whole affirmative action thing, and maybe that's an issue. But there is an instrumentation that is essentially unjust about this. So we can't do this just so that we could do it because of race. It would be crude. So black people and other minorities were to be rewarded from injustices and burdens that were inflicted upon them, but to be benefited and awarded on grounds that are irrelevant to what is actually deserved. So black people and minorities are not injured by being black or brown. They would be injured by being treated unfairly based on their being black or brown. So there's a discrepancy. Oh, I was mistreated. It's because I'm black. No, that might not be the case, but... How would you know when it would be that the mistreatment was actually based on it? Oh, I, I, I'm entitled to getting something else. I wish this outcome would have happened at the job or, or whatever it might have been. Ah, it's because I look like this. That's what I'm going to point to. Maybe, but how do you know? You have to know if it is based on that. And that's kind of the, the place in which it could be crypto where people can use that as an excuse to oppress you. Like, well, it's not because of that. How do you know? You know, but people have the intuition that it is the case because that's what's been reinforced. And it doesn't mean it isn't true, but it doesn't mean it's true either. It's a perceptual observation that's drawn out of oblivion, but is innately a part of the scheme of things and has been, and it can be concealed, but it's also irrelevant to the recompense that people think that they're owed. And of course, well, it seems to be a generalizable uh, categorical imperative to say that only certain people are undergoing suppression of certain legislations that keep them from uh, climbing and building economically to be, you know, they're not the only ones to be burdened by bad schools, bad areas, a drug epidemic brought on by who knows what to be undermined by the poverty and neglect and wounded by maybe police or by other institutions, or to have malfunctioning family units or a lack of support. And of course, we have people unfairly being injured and deprived, but get no support based on in an affirmative action. They're just simply left out. So then there'd be a discrepancy between people who want to apply for the same position or get, gain access to a certain institution and have similar merits or to have similar qualifications. Or maybe you can't even look at that. Maybe there's just a gift that someone has that's buried. How do you know what fate lies with people? How do you know what their strengths, weaknesses are by mark even, even though marks count? But I got a C minus in English in high school, but my papers were being used as an example for the following year. No one told me, hey, you have a gift. You're an excellent writer. You're good with words. You have a sharp vocabulary. You arrange words together very conscientiously. You have a beautiful mind. None of that was said, but I got a C minus in the class. You think UC Berkeley's gonna look highly on it? No, they're not going to. Should they look highly upon me? Yes, if they knew me. They don't know me. I know myself. And what's funny is I didn't find that out until a few weeks ago. <laughs> but you know, here I am, I'm dealing with words. I'm dealing with literature. 
I'm dealing with complex subjects. I'm learning the elements of writing. I'm writing short stories. I'm writing poems. I'm writing screenplays. I'm doing it, you know, I'm, and man, when, when I put my mind at something and I give it an amount of time, I can write very sharply and mainly because I like to listen to people, Li you know, listening to books, reading books, and just being involved with people who use the sharpest arguments and who are lecturers that deal with subject matter that's heavy that require a very solid understanding of what are the right words to use. Because you can read novels all day long, but it doesn't mean these people are talking with the most well-adjusted vocabulary, sprinkling in the most creative word choices they can. It's about arrangement of words as well, and what you're reading, and what subjects you're dealing with. It's not all about how much you read, how much you write necessarily, although that has a lot to do with it. But ultimately, it's what is your knack and observation on the matter. But I'm, I'm, I'm sort of getting away from things. I just, it's my temple. I'll talk about what I want. I'll talk about me, but it does apply to life. It applies to you. It does apply to certain parts of you. There's been parts of you that are overlooked that are brilliant but it doesn't mean that in that department you were brilliant necessarily. It's an institution, and that's what we're getting at. Institutions don't represent um, a functional and fair remedy for giving people certain access and developing themselves in the way that they should or want to. It's a complicated matter, but there is an adversity um, to whom gets what. He says that those with personal histories of deprivation may, in truth, entitle them to some special consideration, are rarely in a position to ever to hope for preference in certain contexts. It is one of the great ironies of affirmative action that those among minority groups receiving its preferences are precisely those least likely to deserve them. Race preference gives to those who don't deserve and doesn't give to those who do. And that might be the case. Uh, likely, maybe more often than not, logistically. Then again, how do you know? How do you know if they weren't in a position to actually become more meritable or to deserve them more? How do you know if that wouldn't be precisely what they need to be afforded that opportunity? Because people who come from nothing, they tend to do pretty well given the opportunity because they are so full of drive and so grateful and so willing to keep with something to make it happen. They want to become a part of that. They want to grow. Everything wants to grow. It doesn't matter if you go to college. Everyone wants to grow in different ways. You know, um, you give yourself water, you give yourself nutrients, you give yourself sunlight. You're just like a plant. <laughs> you want to grow. Everyone wants to, and everyone should be afforded the opportunity to understand how they might grow too, because that's the natural tendency. Everything wants to flourish. But there's this discrepancy, like, let's keep certain people from unflourishing. I just went through that power structure thing earlier, and that's kind of dark. We should all help each other flourish, even if it, it doesn't necessarily mean give everyone everything, because it's hard to remedy that, you know? How should you be doing that? And it would be interesting to look at the idea that uh, white applicants at universities are very populated while minority applicants are far less. And if you meet a certain quota, you'll have this overarching reach of accepting lots of minorities and not so much within the other category, like it's unfair. But also to look at, well, there's also a disparity in who is actually applying. So there's a disparity already. And should we compensate for the concentration of people there and choose lots 
and usher a lot of that category within versus the already disparity of the concentration and overwhelming amount of applicants that per capita of the people are receiving lots of applications per capita versus not receiving very many applications per capita within a group and you choose them overwhelmingly maybe the influence is to try to balance that out even if it isn't deserved you get more people there the influence becomes greater it becomes greater and that may influence a greater community as it accumulates to maybe balance it out. So it would be sort of this um, reintegrating effect that might bring into balance uh, and afford opportunity that isn't there, isn't showing up. And of course, how do you account for just desserts? Well, I think in essence, there is a creation of inferiority. There is Stereo reinforcing stereotypical things, humiliating statistics, um, despairing histories, and the effect of and the catastrophe of, of just the reality of being a part of an environment that is essentially a part of your destiny without you even choosing necessarily. You don't get to. You don't get to choose your parents. A lot of this stuff, you don't have the freedom and ability to be a part of whoever at whatever time. You just don't. You don't have it. You are a product of your environment. Sometimes your hands are just off the wheels. And there's sort of consequences to being just a part of that. And there's nothing you can do. So with Carl here, he's he's sort of making the conclusion that um, that American ideals is that of a society in which neither race nor national origin are given a fish an official function, and that this ideal is subverted by formally awarded ethnic preferences. And when corporations, universities, government agencies first classify and reward and penalize their employees or applicants by race, the categories of race are hardened and entrenched. This hardening has a very bad consequence for society. It's a double-edged sword. But we sort of need to jump over into a different current of thinking. So we're going to go off of Uma Narayan perspective on it. So she's laying out the scope of these policies. Uh, I want to lay out a few of them. She said, student admissions policies at historically elite women's college attended predominantly by white upper class women. Where, as we teach, on the other hand, should affirmatively seek not only to recruit students of color and women from working class backgrounds and white working class men once they adopt co-ed policies, taken as a whole, affirmative action policies in many institutional contexts have long operated on multiple criteria of inclusion, even though they continue to be portrayed as policies that either solely or principally benefit blacks. She is attacking the race-based argument of the belief that middle-class African Americans do not need or deserve the affirmative action. This view is problematic in a number of ways. She says, many proponents of this view pose the issue is as a choice between race and class, ignoring the fact that affirmative action policies have been both class and race-based. Second, proponents of this view believe that middle-class blacks do not suffer from the effects of discrimination despite uh, the substantial evidence to the contrary. And it would be obvious to point out that there is whites who receive job offers three times more often than qualified black people of similar merits. It should be noted that since affirmative action came onto the scene, that middle class jobs arose from 13.4% in 1960 to 37.8% in 1981. So over 20 years, we had just this nearly tripling effect of middle-classness of black people that, of course, this has substantially changed the dynamic of what it is to be a black person in America. 
and what opportunities actually get afforded successfully. So we do see that. She says those who believe that affirmative action continues preferential treatment assume that the, the criteria and procedures generally used for the admissions and hiring are neutral indicators of merit, unaffected by factors such as class, race, or gender, and that such criteria are fairly and impartially applied to all individuals at each stage of the selection process. So these two assumptions are open open to question. It should be noted that the conduit for which people gain control over their own destiny or maybe the way in which they get access to certain things or jobs is because they're recruiting based on certain personal contracts. There, there are certain networks that they may be working through that are available by word of mouth or by a friend, a sort of nepotistic thing, an old boy network, and that's kind of how labor unions can work. There's also these very tacit sort of cultural things that go on which demonstrate um, an empirical study of what would connote more positively your personality, which is very abstract, fitting in subjective uh, assessments such as self-confidence, and how would that work to accommodate a personal perception of who gets in? What kind of prejudice would it be? Because, you know, there's been stories been told of, of people I've known who it's, it's um, they signed up for college and the first thing the counselor says is, are you interested in early child development as a woman? And no, she was interested in like philosophy or some sort of social science or whatever. It's like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to get into other things, you know, but it's just that very along the way you run into all these different sort of forms of speech and um, affirming qualities that people sort of expect. And that does drive sort of the direction you're taking and in your view on where you're going and what you're doing and what place you have, what your place is. So there is uh, something that I want to share from Lawrence A. Bloom. He says, persons can fail to be judged purely on ability because they have not gone to certain colleges or professional schools, because they do not know the right people, because they do not present themselves in a certain way. And sometimes this sort of discrimination takes place e without either those doing the discriminating or those being discriminated against realizing it. Often these denials of equal opportunity have a lot to do with a class background, as well as appearance, race, sex, or a combination thereof. And of course, there's entitlements. People that have been through severe obstacles and overcoming things in order to become whatever level status um, of operation that you need to be personally in order to become a part of something or to be admitted or whatever that standardization might be. I mean, that's abstract in itself, but there still needs to be an, a, a demarcation process, I suppose, in order to know where you are in the world. But there's th those people tend to perform better than those that have it easier, that have the resources that smoothly ascend into it versus those who really had to work. And in some sense, I really had to work at what I had to do. But everyone has a different path for a different reason as well, um, spiritually or, or otherwise, or maybe they can't control that by certain means. But um, it should be pointed out that the performance, even my own grandma said that the performance of the C students, the people that have really been through it and have experience, did better than the A students. Just because there's sort of an element of being entitled to things when you have it easy versus when you really work for it and acquire. So there's something to be said about that. Even though merit does speak, sometimes just the process of being at a disadvantage works at your advantage. And that should be held into account as well during the selection process. So why wouldn't we account for that as an abstract uh, role in 
in this sort of organization of people in the world. So what can you do? Well, I believe the best thing to do is make all resources available to everyone and let everyone have at it. Let everyone see the spectrum and freedom of will that is possible. Let them know who they are. Get better guidance counselors, for Christ's sakes, and open people up and let them make their own informed decisions. Let them use their own capacity and energy and, and desire or undesire, and let them just do what they want. Let them do as they will and see what happens. That would be the best. It should be noted that public institutions and uh, public schools, it wasn't always a reality. I would have just been born into serfdom. <laughs> I would have just been born into these things. I'm already born into certain things. It should be noted that you are born into things, but since within an information age, we have come so far, why not let the chips fall farther where they may and stop the exclusionary um, reinforcing of things? Let people succeed. Let everyone succeed. I'm not saying let everyone be in the middle and let everyone just get a hold of everything. There's got to be some sort of ordering effect, and there will be. We trust the process, but let it be more free and let people do as they will and, and let them ascend as far as they want and spend as much time in X, Y, or Z. Let them learn whatever job. Let them give them all the resources possible and let them just create their own opportunities through their own doing and, and afford that to them because we know the reality wasn't there, but I think it's here now. So if your taxes aren't going to go anywhere, let it go to everyone. Let the resources fly open. Let them be more public because information's reality and everyone's a part of it. So just let that will all order itself out. And in the end, you just try to be respectful to people and just make your claims and Try to be reasonable. Try to feel for what it is. I believe it's more abstract and full of ambiguities and full of uncertainties and possible pitfalls. That's that's life, baby. All right, well, I'm going to sign off there. I've been going way too long, so see you in the next one.